0: Business as an Adventure, a podcast dedicated to improving the businesses and lives of creative entrepreneurs.
1: Together, we interview high-performing entrepreneurs and creatives from all over the world, explore what makes them and their business unique,
0: and along the way, we uncover their secrets to help you craft your own adventure in the world of business. All right, so today's guest is Paige Griffith. She's a lawyer, an entrepreneur, and a creative who helps uh, different business owners navigate the miasma that is contract and intellectual property law. Not only does she run her own law firm, Griffith Law P- P- PLLC, which is a virtual law firm specializing in small business law and intellectual property law, but she also runs The Legal Page, which is how we knew about her, uh, a business that helps service, uh, a business that uh, that helps photographers, videographers, coaches, wedding planners and other creative businesses have better contracts so that they can cover their butts, something that we know so many small businesses don't often do until it is too late. Paige started a photography business in her first year of law school where she learned this firsthand and now has helped countless entrepreneurs protect themselves, their business, and their families with the power of a solid contract. Uh, She holds her Juris Doctor from the University of Montana Law School and a dual Bachelor of of Arts in Economics and Political Science. Uh, She currently lives in Missoula, Montana, which we found out uh, not too far from me uh, just before the call, uh, with her husband and their doodle pup, Sugar, which I have seen many hiking photos of on her Instagram. We're really excited to have Paige here because legal questions are super common in business education, and we often have to temper our answers with large disclaimers and asterisks saying we are not lawyers and we are not giving legal advice, but now we have an actual in the flesh expert. So Paige, thank you for being here and welcome to the show.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here and talk about the most tantalizing topic ever contracts, but I love it. So I can talk about it forever. That was quite the intro. I'm very impressed.
1: Dave is really good at intros, which is why he does most of ours.
0: <laughs> and she always panics when I make her do an intro. Do panic. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we could talk about contracts too. We, we, I, I personally love the contract uh, topic because our contract has been so great for my wife and I and our photography business over the last 13 years. And it all stemmed from we had a good friend when we started off who brought us over to his house for a cup of coffee and said, I'm going to give you my contract because he'd been doing it for 20 years and said, this is this thing has saved my butt so many times. And boy, am I grateful for that, Um, because I personally know and have seen so many anecdotes of photographers not having contracts or having the worst contracts and then things going completely wrong yes i mean even in our our course that we just launched we have a lot of contract information in there again with giant disclaimers (laughs) and asterisks this is for educational purposes only we are not lawyers contract the lawyer contract page yes (laughs) <laughs> just because, like, we just especially over the last year with the whole COVID thing and reschedules and, you know, act of God and blah, 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 blah. That just seems like the topic of contracts has come up again and again and again over the last year.
2: Yeah, definitely. I've uh, that's where we kind of saw this beautiful silver lining, honestly, if you can take anything out of the past like 18 plus months. Is that people actually realize that contracts are important and small business owners understand the nuances of their contract a little bit more than they did previously. And they're realizing, you know, I need to read it. I need to understand it. I need to talk to my clients about it. I need to know how to like change things with my contract. Uh, just honestly, everything from the beginning, of just using a template contract to sending it out to clients to then like using it throughout your guys's entire relationship with your clients, that's been I would say the beauty of what's happened over the past year and a half was people are just like oh contracts are really important like I knew they were but I'm just gonna shove it under the rug for another day <laughs> and now they're like no 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 I can't I can't let that slide anymore that's something that I have to I need to wear we call it like chief legal officer hat. And people just never really even thought that was a thing. Like they're so, you know, there's fancy schmancy things out there where people are more into Instagram courses and like developing their websites and SEO. But if you don't have a solid contract in place to begin with, you're not even setting yourself up for success with booking clients. So I just wanted to add that in there. That's been, (laughs) I think, the best part of the past year and a half. Uh, And I think it's really important for small business owners because we're solopreneurs most of the time and we don't totally understand all of the boxes that we need to check in the legal side of things with our business.
0: What would you say is the most common overlooked thing people come across or you come across in people's businesses when it comes to their contract?
2: I don't think there's one thing. <laughs> um, fair, fair. <laughs> I was like, well, it depends. That's a really solid lawyer answer for that. <laughs> yeah. um, we always, there's always gray areas because I, everyone's different, right? Like I think some people have kind of different, obviously like Enneagrams or they just, they workflow things differently in their businesses. So what your friend does really well, you may not do so well, but maybe you have a better setup legal-wise on the back end of your template contract or something along those lines. I wrote down like five things that we can go through that I think are kind of the best way to answer this question. So I'll just quickly... I'll just list them off and you guys can all write them down if you're like listening to this podcast (laughs) and then um, Dave, we can totally, we can go off on tangents on some of them. So the first is I feel like people just don't understand their own contract. That's like number one. And I know that sounds super basic for all of you guys listening, but just take a second and think to yourself, do I know what every sentence in my clause means and why it's there? Because oftentimes you don't. You've gotten your contract from a friend or a colleague, or you've downloaded it from Google, or even if you've gotten it from a reputable like online virtual lawyer and you have a template contract, have you actually gone through it though and read it line by line? That's what we do as contract lawyers. So we know what it means, but it's really important as a business owner that you understand what it means. (laughs) Literally everything in your contract. And then sending contracts out to clients is a big issue. I feel like people just don't do it the right way. Um, We can talk about that a little bit. And then super solid, super solid cancellation and rescheduling policies. Obviously, that's a rabbit hole, but it's what we all learned. Like, oh crap, we didn't have that. Um, and I would say that's the beginning of 2020, that first six months of the year. I think we all really truly realized that those causes in our contracts weren't as solid as they needed to be. And so I think another silver lining here is we all tweaked those quite a bit and made them more pertinent to our business policies and kind of morals and ethics on how we're running our businesses, which is totally fine. You can do it differently than your friend does it as well, as long as you know what your contract says and you can adequately present those policies and, you know, maneuver through those policies policies throughout your client relationship, utilizing contract addendums and amendments. That's another big one that kind of really tangentially goes well with what I just said. What happens if blank? Do you know how to turn your contract into a, you know, a new scenario while still maintaining the clauses and the validity of the original agreement that you signed. So are you amending certain things in your contract? Or are you adding certain things on with an addendum? That's really important. And I think people, we honestly just didn't really have to deal with it that often. And so especially as photographers, we're like, oh, we can just do this via email, which you totally can. But there's sometimes when you probably want people to sign off on the you know, new thing that you're doing with your you know, contract or changing it up. Um, So that's a big one. And then the final one is just who is signing the contract. So lots of people always just had like one person sign it. And then there's like all these other parties involved or you're, you're having like horror stories of just people kind of being a part of the client relationship when they didn't sign at the bottom dotted line. I also think there was a lot of issues that I have seen. I think that's one of, this is one of the things that I want photographers to check. Make sure you always sign the contract too. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: that's one of those that has popped up multiple times i've noticed in the past few months and i'm like it's just you forgot that checkbox like your client signed it but did you go back and sign it right away after they signed it like immediately too you don't want to wait a week because if anything were to happen in the interim like the contract isn't valid so just the i would say those are the big five glaring things dave that like come up to me all the time (laughs) yeah
0: those are big ones curious on that signing point, because this is a question that I've been asked for years, and I think maybe or maybe not the legality has changed around it. But I remember when we first started doing CRM based contracts, mm-hmm. like online digital contracts, people were concerned about a digital signature mm-hmm. being legally binding. Where, where does that exist now? Because in my belief, and I am not a lawyer, that that is, it, because it's so commonplace now, I would assume that it would be legally binding.
2: Yeah, 100% legally binding. I think the added layer of protection there that you guys need is the clause literally right above the signature line needs to be a counterparts and facsimile signature clause, aka very well known as an electronic signature clause. And it just basically says, this is an electronic contract we're going to be executing this contract probably at different times, looking at it on various computers or IP addresses or smartphones, and that at the time of both parties' signatures is kind of when the contract's effective date comes into play, and that an electronic signature is valid. So that's usually what that clause says, and then it just goes straight into, you know, each party hereby understands and agrees to the terms and conditions in this agreement. Boom, boom, signature, signature. So, yeah, you can totally sign online. It's very commonplace now. There's going to be no argument that anyone could win that that's not a valid contract. Right.
0: Good to know. All right. Now, so, now I can say that with confidence when people ask me.
2: <laughs> so
1: when it comes to who is signing the contract, is it like the, the couple that both of them have to sign it is it just one what happens when there's a coordinator involved
2: yeah oh gosh okay these are good ones (laughs) so when there's a coordinator involved I always say don't have the coordinator sign the coordinator can be involved in the collection of like the vendors contracts uh I've worked we work a lot with wedding planners and coordinators And they have a lot to do as full service providers. Usually they, uh, I think there's this weird misnomer in the photographer world. I'm just going to like blatantly state this. (laughs) That like no one else should have my contract and like why are they asking for it? They're asking for it because they're trying to do their clients a service here. Like it's fine. They can review it. They're trying to get all of the vendors policies under control. They're trying to navigate all of that for their clients. That's part of the service they're providing. Like, it is not a big deal if someone else looks at your contract. And let me tell you, other people are going to look at your dang contract. Like, their their parents are going to look at the contract. Their friends are going to look at it prior to them signing. Like, people are having other people look at your contract. So just get that out of the way f- to, from the get-go. But the planners and coordinators are not your clients. The actual spouses are your clients. Um, If we're talking just in, like, a wedding photography or elopement world here. So I always suggest that both spouses sign the contract. I think that's really important because oftentimes you're usually just dealing with one, which makes sense. But for liability and kind of payment purposes and overall, like when you're actually photographing day of, you don't, you're don't you not just taking photos of one person. You're taking photos of two people and you're trying to service them both to the best of your abilities and kind of over deliver for them on day of. So I always suggest two parties sign the contract. So the both spouses need to sign first and then you would sign after they both sign the contract. And then I don't suggest coordinators sign it whatsoever because there's just so many clauses in the contract that have absolutely nothing to do with coordination and planning and they just have to do with photography. But then it's okay. I just want you guys all to like bless and release the fact that they will probably have your contract. That's 100% okay. Yeah. hmm So I I have a kind of like a Maui
1: specific question. Yeah. Because we have a very interesting way business is done in the wedding industry here on Maui, which is Mm -hmm. a lot of coordinators won't work with you unless you give them a commission. Yes. And the commission is typically like a 20% of a commission. So, or of your, of your packages. Even if the client is signing your contract and not the coordinator, how do you address that contractually?
2: Okay. So I've, I've actually tried to have my wedding in Maui like three times now. So this is kind of interesting. I have like full, uh,
0: <laughs> personal you have the experience scoop. here.
2: <laughs> yeah. I have the insider scoop. Um, so I think the best way to go about this legally is actually to just collect all of the contracts and then they make a commission off of like the total amount of the like mm-hmm. contract value. And so then the clients have a separate contract with the planners or coordinators surrounding they pay that upcharge to the actual planners. That's usually what happens from what I've seen. If it's another way where like you are moving money around, that can get really complicated really fast. And it's probably not a good legal way to do business, I will say, because then you have multiple parties implicated and their liability and risk goes up for things under your contract. So yeah, I'd be interested to hear more. Like when I was planning my wedding, it was it was what I just said. So I had a planner in Maui, I had a photographer like flying over, I had vendors in Maui as well, and then they just took the total contracted amount and I knew I was going to be paying like the commission based on that total value to my planners after the wedding. That's also why I know planners collect contracts because they like right. to see the total amount that's involved in the overall. Total of the wedding.
1: Yeah, so oftentimes how it works here is that the coordinator will charge a total amount like 20% of the bill that's going to be our commission on it. But um, what the client often doesn't know is that the coordinator's already taken 20% from every single vendor. And so if you think that you're paying, you know, $5,000 for your photographer, you're actually paying 20% less than that because the photographer sends Mm. the invoice to the um the coordinator with a 20 percent discount
2: yeah so that's like a way for them to be on preferred vendor list and things like that mm-hmm. so yeah the coordinators only want to work with certain people that'll give them a mm-hmm. split okay yeah yeah i mean i guess legally speaking it's still you would have a contract probably with the coordinator separately so your photography business should probably mm-hmm. have some type of commission contract with the planners and coordinators so you've, you've got like three contracts going on there, which is semi annoying <laughs> in my opinion. I, I don't I don't um, think anybody does that here. I don't think anybody does. That's yeah. really interesting. I mean, you can have like a an email like sequence contract. That's probably what it is. Like you guys have kind of memorialized that in some fashion, whether that's through text or email or a call where it's hearsay. That would kind of be annoying. I would suggest maybe you get that in writing. Yeah. But that's, yeah, I mean, I totally know Hawaii does things totally differently, primarily because those are just, oh, just, just, Maui. just Maui. Interesting. Just Maui. Just Maui. <laughs> I know. Gosh, I could, like, go off on a tangent, too, because of all of the differences with me planning my wedding in Maui. Um, That never yeah. happened because of COVID. It's kind of hilarious. But, yeah, I, <laughs> that's weird. Also, that means they monopolize the industry, so I just won't get into that. <laughs> Like I'm also like this is kind of a problem in your guys's area because there's a monopoly. Yeah. Yes. So I think I digress on that point, but essentially, yeah i I would suggest legally, and we can kind of move on. Is you're going to have the contract between you and your clients, and then mm-hmm. you would have a contract in some fashion, hopefully a written memorialization of you and the planner slash coordinators' commission based whatever mm-hmm. you're giving them, and then the planner and coordinator is going to contract with the client as well and explain all of that in their contract. Hopefully that's in there. No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what I would tell them to do. That's what I would tell them to do. But uh, yeah, they're doing um, it the right way. Yes. Yeah. If they're doing it the right way, I just feel like you're kind of, there's like some deceptive practices going on there, which I would be interested to see like how that would impact Hawaii contract laws. I'm not a Hawaii based attorney, but Mm -hmm. I also know you guys have a lot of issues, way more issues with contracts in Hawaii because there's not a lot of like solid footing for legal things that have gone on there. It's kind of, I would think, I don't know. Anyway, Hawaii is (laughs) just different. And you guys have also experienced a lot of different things that other parts of the country haven't. Because you are such a remote location and you guys have more strict measures in place over the past year and a half. So yeah, Hawaii vendors, I just, I feel for you guys. I get questions (laughs) from you all the time because it's different than talking to someone like, I mean, Dave, you're in Canada. So like, that's a whole different ballgame as well. Like you guys are way more strict. And then I'm in Montana and I'm just like, oh my God, it's like a free-for-all here with what's (laughs) happening. It's (laughs) the wild, legitimately the wild west. And so it's just it's really interesting how state contract laws and then like state measures and guidelines and protocols all come into play with contracts. So mm-hmm.
0: on that note, if someone were to get one of your templates, let's say a wedding photographer was to buy a template from the legal page and they lived in Pennsylvania and they shot a lot of weddings in, say, New York State. Mm-hmm. Would it be advantageous for them to have the template as a starting point and then speak to a state lawyer to, to ensure that everything is like how much are how much of, of a difference is there from from state to state? Um, I know country to country, it's very different.
2: Yeah, but. country to country is very different, especially with people who are trying to buy TLP contracts from Canada. That's when we like draw a hard line because Canadian laws are actually they're decently similar. But I mean, there's basic things like you guys, it was barristers versus attorneys and lawyers. Like there's just, there's some fundamental like wording changes that you need to make in contracts. Um, So if you're in Canada, unfortunately, like our contracts, I would say are not valid unless you go get them looked over, but they're still in English and you still have like very similar contract laws across the board. So people have done that where they're like, we know in Canada, we need to have this reviewed by a barrister. And then they just change like a few little minor things and like check all the boxes and you've saved yourself money essentially because you've gotten a pretty thorough contract. States in the US though, we every state has very similar contract laws. There just might be like minor, minor nuances or recent case law precedent that has come up that probably may tweak a certain clause. And the only clauses that I would say are primarily impacted in wedding industry contracts are indemnification clauses. That's a big one that I think your, like, a contract lawyer would look at. Essentially, there's like lots of public policy laws that vary across the states regarding what you can indemnify and what you can't indemnify. I would just say like, blanketly, you guys don't indemnify your own negligence. That's like never going to fly. <laughs> like, if you're negligent, you're going to get sued. So don't, just don't try to indemnify it. It's going to be thrown out. But I would say, you know, if you're Pennsylvania, that example, if you're a Pennsylvania photographer, you want to make sure that your venue and jurisdiction and like arbitration mediation clauses are all based under Pennsylvania law. So wherever you are, your actual home base domicile is. And then if you're shooting in another location, it's fine. You can just have, you can contractually agree with your clients where you want your contract to be based out of for interpretation purposes, Mm. even if you're shooting in other locations. So I always say, like, do it where, obviously, not where you might be providing services, but where your business is located and you will, I guess, be doing the most services from. Like, obviously, all the pre-work and post-work. And then, yeah, I mean, it's always a good idea to have a lawyer, like, look over it. I just, there's not, like, a ton of contract laws that are so specific. There's like none that are specific to the wedding industry, for example. And I think people don't understand and realize that I would say 95% of a contract in the wedding industry is so specific to just a photographer or just a videographer. And those clauses have, there's no law surrounding those clauses. It's just your business policies and practices. So just making sure that essentially you're not doing anything like wild and outrageous, which our template contracts don't do. It's all just based on the services you're providing and essentially like how your business transactions are going to work with that client. Yeah. I think in the States, it's not as big of a deal. Maybe like Maui. (laughs) We're just going back to Maui. Maybe Hawaii would be a good one to have it looked over. An issue I've seen a ton of vendors come up with, though, is there's just not small business attorneys in Hawaii that understand anything surrounding legal things um, and contracts. So, to be very frank with you, I think a lot of us that are virtual lawyers who are niche down in this industry know more than the average small business attorney down the street. So, your contract is going to be way better anyway than if they were to make it for you. yeah. So there's not like a right answer here. I'm just trying to get to the point of if you're getting a very thorough niche contract, it's going to work better for you in the long run. Yeah, Because other photographers have looked at it. They've addressed things that have gone on. You're working with an attorney like myself who's constantly in the trenches with what's happening legally and litigation throughout the United States. And all of that plays into how contracts are valid. You know, if, if one case law, you know, if something pops up in Illinois, it's actually, it's not precedent in Montana, but it's persuasive precedent. And so if something were to happen in another state that has to do with like actually what's going on with COVID or rescheduling or cancellation, like attorneys are going to bring that up in other states because there's no precedent here. And then they'll be like, well, it is happening over here and a court's actually looked at it. And so courts are persuaded all of the time to do what other states are doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That just sort of ties into that first uh first mistake that you mentioned which is understanding your contract because that's a thing that i see people don't know all the time they buy a template or they got a contract from another photographer like we used to give out our contract all the time because people would be like oh we don't have one and i'd be like oh god please just like take this and and do it but then they would never read it or understand it and so i think for some people i tell them just like speak to a like could someone for example contract the legal page and say hey can you help Help me understand my contract, understand the clauses that are in it, what I can amend, what I can add an addendum to, et cetera, et cetera.
2: Yeah, and there's a lot of lawyers who are doing this virtually now. So that's also a beauty silver lining of the past 18 months is the legal world was so behind in getting in and around the online world. And then, boom, they all had to all at the same time. And so I think the access to legal education and resources from small business attorneys in your like county and home state is a little bit higher than it used to be. And so I do always suggest like even if you just have a like a friend who's a lawyer or someone in your family who's a lawyer that could like look it over with you and just sit down and kind of go through some of the questions you may have surrounding certain clauses, that's gonna serve you way better in the long run because you're gonna actually understand some clauses that you thought you knew what they meant, but now you can actually speak to it from a professional legal standpoint to your clients if they were to ever ask. And then, yeah, I mean, we do it. That's what a lot of virtual law firms do now is like kind of contract reviews and consultations where people really truly do, Dave, just want that. They just want you to sit down and tell them what they don't know uh, because they probably have no idea what they don't know. Yeah. And that's kind of the beauty of... I think this virtual legal world now is it's becoming it's its more and more prevalent for attorneys to be yeah. able to do that when they used to just be like, no, you have to sign a retainer with us and you have to do all of these like loopholes. And then you're like signing on with an attorney client relationship. And that's scary for entrepreneurs and solopreneurs. Like just working with an attorney is terrifying. Um, So trying to find people that understand what you're doing, understand honestly your business which is primarily online is becoming more and more commonplace which is nice but yeah I wouldn't just like have someone who is like a family law attorney look over your contract that's probably not a good idea so just make sure you're finding someone that actually truly understands like small business contracts
0: we, we lucked out a couple of years back where we shot a wedding for two contract lawyers. Perfect. <laughs> and they, in, in the original contract signing process, they're like, hey, we have some issues with these clauses. Can we suggest some new wording, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Same. yes, please. I will take your free Same. legal advice. <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah, that, that's really funny. Like in our Facebook group, we, we just have an open Facebook group. If you guys haven't been in it, it's called the Legal Page Community on Facebook. And it's really awesome. There's a lot of good colleague, like camaraderie in there. Someone literally posted like a couple days ago, one of my clients deals with contracts a lot and had XYZ questions surrounding the contract. And I will say that I think photographers and wedding vendors in particular, their first inclination is to run. They're like, oh my gosh, this is not your ideal client. Red Red flags. flags. Yeah. Like, Angie, you're right. They are like, (laughs) everyone posted like red flags. And part of me wants to be like, well... That's probably a good thing. One, they're reading through your contract. That's great. So they like actually understand what you sent them. Two, like hear them out. If they're, you know, people who deal with contracts all the time, whether they're insurance agents or lawyers or what have you, they probably just know a little bit and they know which clauses can be negotiated. And so just have that open conversation with them. And then, Dave, this goes back to like, if you understand your own contract, you can explain to them why that clause is written the way it is, why you have those policies surrounding that particular situation in that clause. And then if they are like, oh, this person does know and can wear their professional legal hat surrounding their contract, I can't walk all over them. Cool. Sounds good. I understand it now. Maybe we change one sentence in that clause. Boom, we're good to go. Don't be alarmed when clients ask you about your contract. Like, don't take that as a red flag every single time. I mean, if they, like, redline it and they put, like, 15 to 20 comments throughout it, then you've got a problem, okay? Like, that's a red flag. 15 red flags that are popping up. (laughs) Um, But the other, yeah, if it's just, like, really minimal, I, I honestly think that's an opportunity for an open conversation and for you to, like, probably benefit from and your contract's gonna be better in the long run because a client, a third party who hasn't seen it before, is looking at it and has just wants some clarification surrounding it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think because what you said earlier, like the fact that so many photographer contracts are super specific to that business every contract is different and so clarification is a totally fine thing like most people have probably never come across like a model release clause before or something else like that and so they're just like hey i'm just curious what this means that you know if you take photos of my friends you're allowed to put them on the internet or whatever you know yeah
2: exactly and like model release clauses for example are revocable i mean you can sign it and then if you you know post something and they don't like it like they're entitled to their privacy that's like a big thing that consistently pops up that people have issues with I'm like, they can revoke it. They have every ability to, even if you're like, usually you have the word irrevocable. You guys, if you go to your model release clause, you probably have that in there. But like, why would you want to debate your clients on that? Like you want to have it solid. I always say like your contract is the starting point for if something happens. And so you want the words irrevocable. You want to have the model release be like non-exclusive, like you can use it for any and all kind of media and advertising purposes that you have the ability to send photos to third parties and they do not kind of thing, like if you want it published, those types of things. But at the end of the day, they're your client's photos. They're yours. You own them like copyrighted, but they're the ones in them. And so they have a right to privacy that it just wouldn't be worth it to debate later on. And so it, you know, you were fine legally to post that to begin with. That's why the contract is in place. But then you just negotiate with them. And like Dave said, if they just have questions surrounding it, you can always tell them, like, this is why I have it in my contract. I, I think this is a great place to start. And if we need to readdress this once the photos are taken... And if you have any like photos that you would prefer we don't post, we can definitely like work on that mutually together once the photographs are completed and come to a mutual resolution surrounding that. So again, just like knowing what your contract says and being able to communicate that and and clarify with your clients is amazing. It honestly makes you look 10 times more professional. And I bet they're going to book with you because you can explain that to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: totally agree. So I have, I mean, I wrote down your, little, your five points here. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so when it comes to addendums, amendments to your contract, should, should photographers have like a bank of these for things that come up, you know, a, a date change or a location change? Like when do you need an addendum and when do you
2: not? Yeah, great question. I'm so glad you asked this. So- A few things with portrait sessions, for example, I think a location change is different than a date change. So I'm just going to give some like really clear cut answers here for people. So it's a little more black and white, Mm -hmm. um, because I could say it depends, but if it's like a portrait session and you're just changing the location and it's kind of still in the same region, like usually that's what's happening with portrait sessions. It's just not that big of a change. And that happens all the time. I used to do it all the time as a photographer. I just memorialize that via email. Like, this is where the location is changing to. And just make sure you explain, like, if there are or are not additional travel fees. And then Mm -hmm. that's fine. Then just get them to say, like, at the end of your email, just say, please, you know, type a response back that this all sounds good to you. And then, boom, you get it back. And that can serve as your amendment to the contract. However, date changes may, that, that kind of, it, it implicates a lot of things. It implicates the retainer for the date that they paid for. It implicates probably, you know, any type of like cancellation or rescheduling clauses where there's dates prior to the event date that are listed in a contract, if that makes sense. So you're usually saying like you can't cancel or reschedule your portrait session within seven or 14 days of the actual event date. That is when I would do it in an actual addendum format. And in any CRM system, they usually have some type of like template addendums and amendments. That's a good place to start. Uh, We, of course, also have bundles that people can have. And I think it's the best thing to put in your legal toolkit after your contract. Like I tell people client contract number one, and then like all of your rescheduling, cancellation, you know, amendments and addendum bank of like one pager contracts are super important to have in your legal toolkit. And yeah, you do just need them. So you can send off and whip out like a quick, it's like literally two paragraphs and then they sign off on it. But it has that legal language surrounding the remaining, you know, portions of the contract are still valid. Um, We're just changing this specific clause. And so it's a little more formal. And that would be for portrait sessions. So those are two good examples. And then you guys can kind of just decide, you know, other things in terms of they're adding coverage, which deals with payment. I always suggest it's better to like legally memorialize that and at least like an addendum that's signed by both parties Mm -hmm. and that you have in your bank of client contracts with them under their client profile. Uh, With weddings, I always say anything and everything you can have them sign (laughs) in an addendum or an amendment is a great idea. Uh, Changing things can get very complicated very fast via email with weddings. And so I always just say like you're going to have to go back and probably look at things in the future. And if you have like all of the contracts laid out for when things changed where, that's better for both you and your clients If any confusion arises or like legal sticky situations arise later on, because weddings are a bigger deal. There's, there's more liability and risk involved. There's more money involved. So those are the things you're weighing. You can always do it via email though. I always tell people, but don't just send the email and then leave it open-ended. They have to agree back. So you have to have that dual, both people mutually agree. There, you know, is the meeting of the minds. That's a very important contract, you know, element. So you you need to have that. But people think you can't do it via email, but you totally can. I just don't suggest it Mm -hmm. for everything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. So speaking of addendums and amendments, the big one that was, you know, router out March, April of last year, the term that everybody who wasn't a lawyer in the wedding industry started throwing around was force majeure. (laughs) Is that actually a thing? Because I, I had heard that when it comes to an event that is easily rescheduled, like a portrait session, wedding, whatever, that it doesn't actually qualify. But I don't know if that was actually true or not. And do you need to have a force majeure clause?
2: Oh, yeah, you, you absolutely need a force majeure clause. Uh, so force majeure slash act of God clauses, you guys are the same. Um, an act of God sometimes is an actual delineated force majeure event, quote unquote, in these clauses. But lots of people had them termed act of God clauses. I suggest if you have that in your contract, you just change it to force majeure because then you can in that clause say a force majeure event, capital F, capital M, capital E is colon boom, boom, boom. So acts of God, including blah, blah, blah uh hurricanes, blah, 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 uh, you know, war, terrorism, blah, blah, blah. Like you can actually tell them what you are qualifying as a force majeure event in your contract. I would say yeah, it was a thing because it has to be unpredictable, an unpredictable situation, an unforeseeable situation, and it has to make it impossible to perform. So when we were back in March and April of 2020, force majeure was absolutely implicated. The issue was, is everybody's clause said something different and then no one had what occurs when a force majeure <laughs> act <laughs> is basically they're invoking that clause. So mm-hmm. clients would be like, if this is force majeure, but then then what? So that was the biggest issue is there's no like, if a force majeure event happens, then like wh- what party is notifying who Can you reschedule? What happens with fees paid? Mm -hmm. Especially with photographers and weddings where it was like, this is probably going to occur down the line, just not right now because of the pandemic. So it's like, you can't just cancel because you have all these contracts in place. And that's what was going on in the wedding industry last year is it was like, everyone just thought that meant we can void and cancel the contract when in fact, probably, You could reschedule, which means performance could occur later on, which is the entire point of a force majeure clause, you guys. So, like, back in the day when these actually started and where this whole clause came about was, like, a shipping port. And it was, like, the actual shipments from the barge couldn't get to where they needed to go because there was, like, issues at the port and there was, like, a hurricane. And that's, like, where this all started. This is the case law surrounding it. Um, So it was all about performance. They couldn't perform under the contract and get X shipment to X location by X date because of this force majeure event. But they were allowed to elongate performance to a future date. But again, I just I feel like nobody understood what force majeure meant, how it went down. Um, So just make sure, you guys, I guess, to round this out because I could just literally talk about force majeure forever. I I feel like I know (laughs) way too much about it. Um, I've actually, like, like educated other lawyers on force majeure because I know way too much about it. But essentially, like, you want to explain what a force majeure event is in your clause, explain how people notify one another, all parties in the contract, if one is trying to invoke force majeure how that notification is going to occur. That's in the middle of your clause. And then what happens if the performance isn't postponed or you don't just like have the session seven days later or something like that. If you actually do have to terminate the contract and then move funds over somehow, what does that look like? So that should be the end of your clause there. And we have a free force majeure clause still out there just fyi somewhere i don't know you can go find it at thelegalpage.com <laughs> <laughs> if you put in like I'll, I'll link it in the show notes yeah, yeah, if i, you put I in have it bookmarked force <laughs> clause, i'm positive we have it and so that's really important to have those three key things in your force majeure clause now is it still force majeure covid and the pandemic no because it's not unpredictable it's not unforeseeable And technically, it's probably not impossible for you to perform. Maybe there's nuances you have to do or you have to, like, change up the way that you're performing pursuant to local guidelines and protocols that consistently change, especially now. We're recording this in the fall of 2021. It's like we're back to square one where things are changing every week. But they are contracted with you in the middle of a pandemic. They knew what they were getting themselves into, and they accepted and assumed that risk. And so force majeure is really obsolete now, I would say, in the pandemic world. It was a thing at the beginning, and now it's not. So you still need to have it in your contract for, like, hurricanes, avalanches, like, acts of war, like, things like that, which is what it was meant to be to begin with. Make sure you also add in, like, epidemics and pandemics in there, because that wasn't usually in there to begin with, and people didn't really know to put it in there. But COVID isn't something that people don't know about now. Right. So in that vein, you need some type of COVID clause that just really that. explains your business <laughs> policies on COVID and everyone does things differently. So I will just say like we are always suggesting at this point in time, this has been around long enough, if your clients are contracting with you, you need what's called kind of an acknowledgement of COVID, which is like an assumption of risk clause and no rescheduling that's a big one where you like cut it off and if they decide to change then boom you keep the retainer and then they sign a totally new contract Mm -hmm. so it's like really cut and dry and I just that's the way that I suggest people in the wedding industry go about this for the time being probably forever and ever or you're just going to have constant reschedulings and cancellations and it's not going to be Clear to your clients Mm -hmm. what your business policies are surrounding that. They are assuming the risk with contracting with you right now and planning an event. So they know what that looks like. And, you know, again, you have that verbatim blanket this is my terms surrounding COVID reschedulings in your contract. And then if you want, you can go above and beyond and kind of negotiate and work with your clients later on. And that makes you kind of look like a better service provider, but you could do it nuanced based on facts and circumstances of each client situation. You can do that. I mean, I always suggest like probably don't just like make it cut and dry and tell them, well, I could still perform. So you're choosing voluntarily to cancel the contract or to reschedule. Therefore, we need to just cut this contract, be done with it, move on. You're not obligated to make any more payments. I'm going to keep the retainer because I had that date booked on my calendar, and I said no to a bunch of other people who could have had their event or session even during the pandemic, and they would have came to Maui. For example, um, <laughs> this is a big one that's happening in Hawaii because it's constantly changing. Yeah.
1: Well, and then we're always at, we're always at the risk of shutting down the island completely. So people, yeah, we actually we have to have another clause in there because. If they shut it down where people cannot
2: fly here, then that is something that, like, it's not like you can jump in your car. So then you're kind of back to either a force majeure situation or you've contracted around that situation. So, yeah, if it's impossible for you to actually get here, here's what we do with transferring your fees. Right. Usually. So we'll give you 12 to 18 months to then reuse that retainer that you paid towards... Another session when you can so get to.
1: I have a question here. It's something that has mm-hmm. come up for a few of my colleagues. What if either the well, one of the people getting married? What if they come down with COVID for the week of their wedding? Then what?
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously you, you well, can't perform. Obviously, right? <laughs> obviously, but in that situation, like you know, it's probably you're going to have to do something with fees paid. At that point, usually all fees paid up to the point of a termination or cancellation. And that's where you need to have really clear cut cancellation policies in your contract Mm -hmm. with notification timing. Um, Usually it's at least 30 days prior to the event date. But then they're going to say like, well, how could we have known we were going to get COVID? And part of this is like you have assumed the risk that this could occur. This is why you need a COVID clause in your contract. And so in your COVID clause, especially for wedding vendors right now, if they come down with it, that doesn't mean you just have to, like, give back all of the funds. Like, they knew that they were putting themselves in harm's way right now. Like, literally walking out the door, you're susceptible to a variant right now. And so you understand and assume the risks of doing that. And then I would just move all funds and probably just move performance to another date if possible. So you're offering them an alternative solution to it. But don't let them walk all over you and say like, this is a canceled contract and we want all of our fees back and all that stuff. Like that's not going to fly because you're probably doing everything in your power as well to not contract COVID because you have clients every single weekend that you need to serve. So it's very like dual sided there where if they come down with it, then I would just not take it as like a full cancellation and still just take it as a rescheduling situation.
0: On that, if if a client were to come back and start, you know, throwing their weight around, at what point in time is it worthwhile to fight? And is it worthwhile, yeah. worthwhile to back down? Because sometimes the clients have more money than the photographer, things like that. And it's like, I don't you know, by the time I pay for legal fees and everything else like yeah. that, I would have been out more money than if I just would have given them their money back.
2: Well, this is the big question with breach of contract. So, Mm. I mean, every small business owner is honestly making that decision themselves. I can't Mm. tell you when it would behoove you to back down and give them some type of, you know, partial refund to make them happy at that point. But that's what attorneys have been doing for the past 18 months. We're constantly negotiating contractual issues for clients to come to a mutual resolution. And Dave, you made a really good point. Do you guys want to pay an attorney to do that for you? Or is there a way that you can come to a mutual resolution without paying legal fees? Because here's what happens. And this is where people have no idea. I'm like, if you, you need to try to settle it first. Because when it gets in the hands of lawyers, we're going to try to settle it too. Before any litigation happens or anyone files any like small claims court action or just, you know, city, city, you know, in actual, uh, like your county courthouse. We are trying to avoid litigation at all costs because it's so expensive. So it's kind of funny to me that people immediately are like, I need legal help to do this when I'm like, but have you tried to resolve it and offer, you know, you need to have like your five-step guideline of, this is what I say to begin with. If they're not happy with it, boom, I move to this option. Boom, I move to this option. Like you want to start out pretty strong and like I'm trying to empower you all right now on this podcast. Like you can do it. I promise you. You have to put on like your big girl pants and you just you have to be the chief legal officer of your business. No longer are you providing like the utmost customer service. Like you're in a legal situ- situation with your clients. Like it, you know, it's the whole client relationship is probably not great at that point. So you (laughs) need to protect your business and you need to protect yourself. And so you need those like clear cut. This is what my policy is. And then if they're not happy with it, you're just like consistently trying to talk to your client and come to some type of resolution. Usually I would say the commonplace answer is there's some type of partial refund to just appease them and move on a partial refund of $500 to $1,000 is probably going to be way less than legal fees. So that's how I would decide that. It's literally weighing and balancing the, you know, factors involved of getting an attorney involved. If they get an attorney involved, that's when you definitely probably need to lawyer up is what people call it and have a lawyer communicate on your behalf to this other attorney versus you talking to them Uh, because attorneys can walk all over pro se people. Yeah, that's I guess that's the best answer I can give. I would say 99.9% of things right now you guys are settled. I, I rarely, rarely see things go to court in the wedding industry world.
0: Yeah, that's that's my experience with my coaching clients who have been in this situation is I basically just we, we try to we try to settle it without lawyers, which yeah. I mean, it, it definitely it, it rankles some people's moods. But it's like, is it is this better off to give them some money back or to chase this for the next year or more? So,
2: yeah. And it's really sucky. Like, I, I feel for you all, you know, sometimes it's based on principle as well. I will say, like, you're going to have those situations come up where you need to think long term. Like, you know, if I just concede to their wishes, What will this look like for my future interactions with clients? Is that going to get out? That kind of thing. Like, am I in a small town? I mean, you have to take those into consideration as well when you're settling things. Um, So I have seen, you know, photographers in particular, they, they do like argue for a while back and forth just based on principle. Like their contract is there for a reason. And they're not just going to back down because someone's trying to like muscle arm them into getting a bunch of money back. Like, they're like, no, I can bring my contract to court and argue it. And that goes back to understanding your own contract. Like, if it's really solid, you have really good footing underneath you for a legal situation to come up. And if it is just small claims court, you can argue yourself, pro se. If you know your contract really well, you don't have to have an attorney next to you. Obviously, it's more beneficial to, but I've seen people go into small claims court the whole past year and a half, and they win. They are willing to do it. they are emotionally like prepared to go through that turmoil for a few months to get you know in front of a judge, and then they argue their side, and usually the judge will side with them actually because it's there, and they all sign the contract so uh and again, that's why you want like emails and written communication with your clients, too, that you can present if you do get to that situation.
1: Fair enough. So one thing that I see in a lot of groups, all, all the Facebook communities that I'm a part of, um, people are talking about like, <laughs> like, oh, you know, I've delivered these photos and they put a filter over them and it says specifically in my contract that you cannot alter any of the images. But obviously people don't read contracts. I think a majority of them yeah. don't read the contracts. Are there any tips and tricks that you might
2: have to get people
1: to actually read it?
2: Yeah. Sending your contracts to clients. That was number two that I talk about. So good transition, (laughs) Angie. Well, you Uh, know. We're just like bopping all around for the one through five here, you guys. (laughs) Um, Absolutely. So this is kind of the issue that has popped up with online sending of contracts is it's not like you're sitting down in person anymore across the table and like going through the contract and explaining things to people and people ask questions and you both sign on the dotted line. Like that's what you usually do when you're buying a house or you know there's there people are actually looking at contracts. And so I always say there's some pre-things you can do to ensure that your clients are looking at specific clauses in your contract prior to signing. Um, We have a really good blog post about this as well. If you guys want like just generic swipe copy that you can copy and paste, and then you can obviously like make it your own voice and tone. But what you want to do is instead of just the blanket, send your contract. Thanks so much for jumping on the inquiry with me. You know, attached, you will find the contract. Please review and sign at your pleasure. Yes. Sincerely, Paige. Don't, don't do that anymore. (laughs) I want you to actually point out specific clauses in your contract, and uh, you're going to do it in layperson terms. So usually you're going to have an introductory paragraph that talks about like what you guys went over, the package that you know they have, you know, wanting they're wanting to book with you, and then you kind of maneuver into contract world, and you say you know this is really important that we both understand this contract and that you agree to it, but. You know, I, I want to take this as an opportunity for me to point out a few really key points in my contract that I just want you to understand and take an extra peek at prior to signing. And then you say like clause three, boom, what is the heading of clause three? This is why our clauses are numbered. This is why our clauses have headings because it's really easy to navigate through our template contracts at the legal page shop. So you guys make sure you have numbers and headings on your contract, FYI. And then you can be like, clause three, rescheduling policy, boom. What does that mean in your own words as a photographer before they go then look at the legal language in your contract? Can you just explain it to them? And I always suggest you put like three to five kind of bullet points in that email template where you're sending your contract to your client and it opens the door in conversation at the end. You want to wrap it up with if you have any additional questions surrounding the contract, please feel free to reach out to me. I think that's a really conversational, easy, open communication way to begin the client relationship. And also it's additionally serves as evidence and proof that you pointed out that clause to your client prior to signing. So you have them signing the contract where that's in there at the bottom dotted line, but you can also point out to, I sent this email to them explaining what that clause meant prior to signing. So you've got double proof there and evidence if something were to occur down the line that they did indeed know what your policy was surrounding that. Um, So I think that's a really good tip for people that don't do that. And I think in their workflow and system, they're so worried about the booking process that they forget about this one little email that they could just put in their CRM system that would be there forever on sending the contract to your client. And then, Angie, I think you were saying, like, you know, if there's any issues where they didn't understand what they meant or something along those lines. I mean, you have so many defenses to contract where, you know, you agreed to the terms and conditions by signing this contract. Like, this is what it says. But at the end of the day, it's all about working with your clients to, you know, hopefully make them not upset about whatever your contract said. (laughs) So sometimes you can... Like I said, you can always go above and beyond what your contract says and be the bigger person and be the better service provider in, you know, non-complicated situations where it's like, yeah, okay, I can just waive that provision for these clients and it's it won't matter. So, okay. Like it's not going to mm-hmm. hurt me down the line.
0: Awesome. Well, I could literally talk about this all day, but I want <laughs> other people are bored take... <laughs> listening.
1: <laughs> this is so interesting.
0: Hopefully nobody is super interesting <laughs> stuff, but um maybe we'll have you back for a round two sometime in the future. Yeah. Um but uh I'm going to link to all sorts of different things into our show notes. Um we've I've got the force majeure clause. I've got that blog post that you're talking about, everything else. But if anybody wanted to to find you or what you do on the internet, where else might they be able to find you?
2: Yeah. I don't uh, beat around the bush here, you guys. I'm Legal Page, P-A-I-G-E, everywhere, <laughs> so you can find me on all the social media platforms, and LegalPage.com is probably the easiest place to find us. We have lots of good free resources. That's the entire reason why I built the business that I built is I just wanted people to have access to free legal education that are small business owners, especially in the creative world. Um so we of course sell contract templates but we also have lots and lots of good free things that you can find on there as well if you're looking for an additional answer to a question that you may have uh and then I also invite you like I said to our Facebook group it's free I mean we are all in a million Facebook groups so I totally understand if you don't want to join it like full disclaimer get it but ours is really good people are I monitor it my legal team and I so that is where we can answer legal questions <laughs> because it's in a group forum. So attorney-client privilege doesn't attach. You don't have to book us one-on-one to answer any questions. So lots of people like joining that group, and people are really great about sharing their experiences with legal situations as well, so you'll get good input from other people as well. Awesome. All right, so Paige, seeing as
1: business is an adventure, what, what's some uh, field note or trail guide that you would leave to somebody else starting their own journey?
2: Yeah, I'd say step number one, get a contract. <laughs> I knew you'd say that on your hike. <laughs> That's step number one. Uh, I think step number two is do this, do all of the five things we just explained mm-hmm. here. So a lot more about understanding your contract, how to use your contract, how to send your contract, how to modify your contract. That would be step number two, and then I think step number three on your trail and hike is to be empowered to utilize the language in your contract that is there to protect you. So don't just think that it's there for no reason. There's a whole reason you signed the contract and worked through all of these steps during your client relationship like you are the master of your own business and you have a contract there to serve and protect you. So remember that and be empowered to you know take off the the client hat, the like over delivery i'm just all about customer service and really truly be someone who is the chief legal officer of your business and is there to like argue and protect your business that you've worked so hard to create perfect
0: perfect All right, well, we're going to end it there because I think that's a really great place to end it. So thank you so much for for hanging out with us and uh, maybe we'll do this again sometime. Sounds good. Thanks so much for tuning into our show today. You can find a transcript of this episode and all of our episodes, as well as our show notes at businessasanadventure.co slash podcast. You can find us on our Instagram at businessasanadventure. We'd also love to see you in our Facebook community where we provide weekly free education for our fellow adventurers. You can find the link in our show notes.
1: And finally, if you want to get a weekly, not spammy email from us with our favorite things we found in the business and creative world, you can sign up for our Field Note Fridays at businessasanadventureco slash fieldnotes.